0: For our purposes, it is not necessary to describe the movement of the raiders from day to day. It would be enough to indicate broadly that the raids which began on the 22nd of October 47 appeared to go in a sort of triumphal procession, spreading terror among all the citizens all along the line and committing untold, indescribable atrocities on the way. Towns were sacked, temples were looted and destroyed, women were abducted and property was destroyed. On the 27th of October, about 10 a.m., the raiders reached Baramula. This is a prosperous town near Srinagar. At Baramula, to their shame, the raiders unleashed their savagery in the most barbarous and naked manner. Having done their worst in Baramula, they proceeded further and looked as if Srinagar would not be able to stand their onslaught. The so-called army of the Maharaja of Kashmir was completely demoralized and powerless to meet the superior numbers and equipment of the ruling party. It was against this background of this tragic setting that events took place in rapid succession, which ultimately led to the accession of Kashmir to India. The rapidity of the events, which in retrospect appear almost dramatic, though they had the aspect of unrelieved tragedy as it took place, is ironically enough the direct result of Pakistan's attempt to force Kashmir into accession by the brutal exercise of military strength. On the 24th of October, the Maharaja appealed to India for help. Immediately the situation was discussed by the Government of India at the meeting of the Defence Committee on the 25th of October. At this meeting, Lord Mountbatten presided. General Lockhart told the meeting that he had received a telegram from the headquarters of the Pakistani army. The telegram said, reports showed that they were already little more than 35 miles from Srinagar. The Defence Committee realised the urgency of the situation. Even so, it adopted a cautious approach. It realised that India would be justified in sending help to Kashmir only if Kashmir acceded to India. And this conclusion was based on the view that the government wisely and correctly took about the constitutional position in the matter. Consistently with this decision, the government decided to send VP Menon, Secretary of State Ministry to Srinagar, to make a personal study on the spot about the situation. Meanwhile, the Maharaja and his Prime Minister Maherjan Mahajan had decided by the 25th evening to go to India if they got a plane or else to go to Pakistan for surrender. At that very moment, Menon reached Srinagar. Menon discussed the situation with Maharaja and explained to him the constitutional position. On his return to New Delhi, Menon impressed upon the Defence Committee the supreme necessity of saving Kashmir from the raiders and informed the committee that the Maharaja wanted to accede to India. Then the Defence Committee decided that the government of India should accept the Maharaja's offer of accession and take immediate steps to defend Kashmir. It was thought, and rightly, that as soon as Kashmir acceded to India, it would not only be open to India to defend Kashmir, but it would be its constitutional and political duty to do so. On the 26th of October, the Maharaja communicated to India, his decision to accede to India. With the conditions of obtaining at present in my state, said the Maharaja, and the great emergency of the situation as it exists, I have no option but to ask for help from the Indian Dominion. Naturally, they cannot send the help asked for by me without my state acceding to the Dominion of India. I have accordingly decided to do so and attach the instrument of accession for acceptance by your government. The other alternative is to leave my state and the people to free Bhutas. On this basis, no civilized government can exist or be maintained. It is proved that Pakistan instigated and organized the invasion of Kashmir on the seventh second of October, forty-seven. The charge of coercion must therefore be squarely placed at the door of Pakistan herself. The Maharaja was apparently pursuing the idea of a separate state, but he was rudely shocked by Pakistan's act of invasion, and so he decided to accede to India. India was justified in intimating to the Maharaja that in the context of contemporary political events, following the partition of India, she had to watch the steps very carefully, and she would not be justified in sending her army unless the Maharaja made Kashmir a part of India. Having received this communication from the Maharaja, Lord Mountbatten wrote back to him on the 27th of October. In In the special circumstances mentioned by your highness, said Lord Mountbatten, my government have decided to accept the accession of Kashmir state to the dominion of India. He, however, took the precaution of adding, in consistence with their policy, that in the case of any state where the issue of accession has been the subject of dispute, the question of accession should be decided in accordance with the wishes of the people of the state. It is my government's wish that as soon as law and order have been restored in Kashmir, and his soil cleared of the invader, the question of the state accession should be settled by reference to the people. That is how Kashmir became a part of India on the 27th of October, 47. It is illuminating to hear the account of the meeting which the Prime Minister of Kashmir, Mahajan, had with Nehru on this occasion. Mahajan had arrived in Delhi to appraise Nehru and his government of the true situation in Kashmir and about the anxiety of the Maharaj of Kashmir to accede to India. In order to impress upon Nehru, The seriousness and the urgency of the situation, Mahajan told Nehru that he had orders to go to Pakistan in case immediate military aid was not given and that upset Nehru and put him in an angry mood. Mahajan, go away, he said. And Mahajan also got up and was about to leave the room when Sardar Patel detained him by saying in his ear, of course, Mahajan, you are not going to Pakistan. Just then, a piece of paper was passed over to the Prime Minister. He read it and in a loud voice said, Sheikh Sahib also says the same thing. It appeared that Sheikh Abdullah had been listening to all this talk while sitting in one of the bedrooms adjoining the drawing room where we were. He now strengthened my hands by telling the Prime Minister that military help must be sent immediately. This came as a timely help for the success of my mission in New Delhi. The Prime Minister's attitude changed on reading this slip. After a few minutes' talk, he told me to go and have some rest at Sardar Baldev Singh's house. He was calling a meeting of the Defence Council at 10 a.m. to discuss the matter and promised to convey his decision to me through my host, Sridhar Baldev Singh. This incident, in my opinion, this is very, what is what very eloquent, you, uh, and it clearly and unequivocally brings out the essentially democratic approach adopted by Nehru and his government, even at this critical hour in the history of Kashmir. Nehru knew and believed that Sheikh Abdullah was the undisputed leader of Kashmir and represented the democratic conscience of the people of Kashmir. It was only when Sheikh Abdullah supported the request made by Maharaja, Mahajan, who was the Prime Minister of Kashmir, that Nehru decided to go ahead with the necessary plans to assist Kashmir. I think it would not be inaccurate to say that in the ultimate analysis, Nehru's decision to accept Kashmir's accession to India, and to help her in an hour of dire need, was really based upon his conviction that the democratic forces in Kashmir, which represented the public will of the Kashmir people, supported the Maharaja's decision in favor of accession. This fact should not be ignored in considering the total picture about Kashmir's accession to India. Since for the purpose of my discussion, what is relevant is the accession of Kashmir, I do not think it is necessary to pursue further the story of the raid and describe how ultimately the ceasefire was ordered by the two governments We effect on the 1st of January 49, The raid was brought to a halt. That, in brief, represents the broad outline of the material facts which led to the accession of Kashmir to India on the 27th of August, October 47. India then made a complaint to the Security Council in 1948. In 1948, when India made a complaint before the Security Council, the World Organization was still in its infancy, and the Cold War was being waged in its most ferocious form. Besides, the independent foreign policy which Nehru had articulated, and which India, under his leadership, was consistently attempting to follow, was misunderstood by some powerful countries. The doctrine of non-alignment sounded strange and new to the world in 1947-48, and it meant different things to different people, and that naturally created misgivings about the foreign policy of India and the direction which India was likely to take in her relations with the world. This factor also was partly responsible for the acrimony of the debates which went on in the Security Council from day to day, the changing attitudes of the different countries from stage to stage, and the inability or reluctance of the Security Council to come to actual grips with the real problem presented by the two complaints before it. For my purpose, it is not necessary to refer to these tortuous proceedings. It would be enough to state that ultimately, on the 27th of July 49, the ceasefire line agreement was signed and the invasion which began with an attack by the raiders came to a formal end. Though I have referred to the tortuous course of the debates and discussions which took place before the Security Council for about a year after India had filed a complaint before that August body, it must be conceded that the signing of the ceasefire agreement is an achievement to the credit of the Council. As a result of this agreement, the United Nations organization had, in fact, been able to impose upon India and Pakistan the clear duty not to violate the ceasefire line and thereby disturb the peace in the region. Lord Birdwood seems to feel that the ceasefire was not so much an achievement of the commission as of the British initiative in the matter. Says he, in fact, it was British initiative which should receive the honors. And again, the worthy envoys from Lake Success were comparatively inactive passengers so far as any influence at this stage on events in Kashmir was concerned. In support of this view, Lord Birdwood has referred to the part played by General Butcher in persuading Nehru to agree to a ceasefire or be prepared in the alternative to carry the war into Pakistan. Nehru gave assent to General Butcher's proposal to accept the ceasefire. Thereupon, General Butcher wired General Glancy of Pakistan, and that, according to Lord Birdwood, played an important role in the signing of the ceasefire agreement. It may, however, be relevant to point out that, in point of fact, Pakistan was persuaded to accept the ceasefire at this time because the military situation was threatening to go against Pakistan's interest. As always happens, the aggressor has an initial advantage because the country attacked is unsuspecting and is not prepared to meet the onslaught. That happened in the case of the infiltration by the raiders, and but for the timely help lifted by air to Kashmir, even Srinagar would have been in a serious danger. Later, the spring offensive led by the Indian Army, however, registered considerable advance into the valley, and but for the fact that the government of India did not intend to carry the war into the territory occupied by Pakistan. Perhaps, at the time of the ceasefire, the ceasefire line would have extended very much into the Azad territory. Pakistan's military leaders were fully conscious that the psychological equipment of the tribesmen made them completely unsuitable for a long-torn-out war, and that substantially explains how and why Pakistan was prepared to sign the agreement. In Brecher's view, the consideration which undoubtedly influenced Pakistan's decision was the marked improvement in India's military position. It can therefore be legitimately claimed by India that she signed the ceasefire agreement in the genuine belief that it would lead to peace between the countries and she refused to take further military action, though the military position at the relevant time was such that very much in favor of mounting an attack in the Kashmir area illegally occupied by Pakistani raiders. In considering the totality of circumstances leading to Kashmir, this fact cannot be ignored. Before leaving this topic, however, I think it is necessary to dwell on the effect of the three resolutions which bind the parties and to determine their obvious consequences and implications. I have already referred that the statement made by Pakistan in a reply to India's complaint was presented in two forms. Document 2 contained a counter-charge against India and Document 3 contained a total denial of the allegations made by India about Pakistan's complicity in the invasion of Kashmir. It is hardly necessary to say that no effort has been made by Pakistan at any stage of the proceedings before the Security Council to justify its wild charge of genocide against India. In truth, facts which are now known by all the world clearly show that the charge of genocide was merely a counterblast to India's complaint, and it was intended solely to divert the attention of the Security Council and the world at large from Pakistan's own act of gross violation of international laws and conventions. In regard to the accession of Pakistan, that she had nothing to do with the raid of tribesmen. I have already indicated how it must be taken to be fully established that Pakistan had instigated the entry of the raiders into Kashmir, had guided their activities, had supplied them with arms and ammunition, had directed their operations, and that in fact the armed personnel of Pakistan had joined in the attack. It is true that in the development of international law, we have yet not reached a stage when a nation deems it to be its obligation to present its case before an international forum like the Security Council in an honest and true manner. It is everyone's hope that in course of time, new, when the human race develops and adopts a code of new international ethics and international law, every nation will feel in honor bound to take its dispute with another state before an international forum and state its case fairly, honestly and in sensible and decent words. But the blatantly dishonest pleas taken by Pakistan before the Security Council clearly show that Pakistan believes that if she made wild allegations against India, in abusive language, that would divert the attention of the Security Council from the only point which it had to decide on India's complaint. And unfortunately, Pakistan's object substantially succeeded for some time at any rate. We must never forget this aspect of the matter. Another point which has to be borne in mind is the nature of the clarification which India officially and formally secured before she joined in executing the ceasefire agreement. It is in the light of these assurances that the resolutions passed by the Security Council which are binding on both the countries need to be examined. Let me begin with the first resolution, which was passed on the 17th of January 48. This resolution called upon the governments of India and Pakistan to take immediately all measures within their power to improve the situation and to refrain from making please any statement and from doing or causing to be done or permitting any acts which might aggravate the situation. All that is necessary to be stated in respect of this resolution is that whereas India did nothing more than resist the raiders' attack on Kashmir. Pakistan admittedly introduced her army into Kashmir, subsequent to the passing of this resolution. It is this infamous act which has received polite but firm condemnation from the UNSIP itself. The second resolution, which was passed on the 13th of August 48, consists of three parts. Part 2, which relates to the two agreement, is important for our purpose. Clause A1 of Part 2 expressly states that the presence of Pakistani troops in Kashmir constituted a material change in the situation since it was represented by Pakistan before the Security Council. And so it records the fact that the government of Pakistan agreed to withdraw its troops from that state. That is term number one to which Pakistan agreed. Clause A-2 provides that Pakistan should use its best endeavor to secure the withdrawal from Kashmir of tribesmen and Pakistani nationals not normally resident therein who had entered the state. That is condition number two. Clause A-3 provides ...that the territory evacuated by the Pakistani troops... ...will be administered by the local authorities... ...under the supervision of the commission. That is condition number three. It is plain... ...that none of these conditions had been complied with the Pakistan. The scheme of the resolution is clear and unambiguous. The first step in bringing about the truce ...between the two countries was... ...that Pakistan had to withdraw her troops... ...had to assist and bring about the withdrawal... ...of the invading tribesmen... ...and to leave the administration of the area... ...occupied by the invaders in the charge with the local authorities under the surveillance of the Commission. It was only when these preliminary steps had been taken effectively that Clause B was to come into operation. Clause B specifically says so. It provides that when the commission share have notified the government of India that the tribesmen and Pakistani nationals referred to in Clause A2 have withdrawn, thereby terminating the situation against which India had complained to the Council. And further, that the Pakistani forces were being withdrawn from the territory of Kashmir Occupied by them, as a result of the invasion, the government of India had to begin to withdraw the bulk of its forces from that state in stages to be agreed upon with the Commission. It is hardly necessary to add that since the conditions specified in Clause A, sub 1, 2, and 3 were never satisfied, Clause B could not come into operation at all. Part 3 refers to the proceedings which had to be undertaken to determine the will of the people. But Part 3 clearly would come into play only after Parts 1 and 2 had been complied with. The sequence of events clearly shows, clearly was, that part one had to be complied with first, part two then followed, and then we reached the stage of enforcing part three for ascertaining the wishes of the citizens of Kashmir in regard to the future status of that state. It is in the light of this scheme, of the second resolution, that the third resolution passed on the 5th of January 49 must inevitably be examined. This resolution refers to the fact that the question of the accession of Kashmir to India or Pakistan would be decided through the democratic method of free and impartial plebiscite, and it proceeds to lay down the manner in which, and the procedure under which, the plebiscite had to be held. Quite clearly, this resolution remained a dead later for the reason that the basic requirement, which was the preliminary requirement, and which imposed upon Pakistan certain obligations, was never satisfied. It is therefore clear that so far, as the three binding resolutions are concerned, India cannot be blamed for not discharging her obligations under the said resolutions, because her obligations arose only after Pakistan had discharged her obligations in the first instance. When I consider the question of plebiscite, the relevance and materiality of this important aspect would be plain. It is hardly necessary to emphasize that the fact that if no plebiscite could be held soon after the said resolution was passed, it is essentially because Pakistan refused to carry out its obligations under part two, clause A, of the resolution passed on the 13th of August 48. that is, the crux of the matter, with the August Security Council Acting under political pulls and pressures, exercised by powerful nations of the world, has consistently tended to ignore. Though India and Pakistan signed the ceasefire agreement in '49, the relations between the two countries continued to be bitter, and the debate about Kashmir was being held from time to time before the Security Council in the same acrimonious manner as before. Several attempts were made by the Security Council to see if the said relations could be normalized and an atmosphere of friendship and cordiality established between them. Sometimes it seemed as if the two countries were coming together. Some of the outstanding problems, such as the sharing of the waters of the Punjab rivers, were, under the guidance of the World Organization, satisfactorily resolved by agreement between them. But Pakistan continued to harp on Kashmir, its liberation and the need of plebiscite all the time. Passions were aroused in Pakistan to a high pitch, and the emotions of the community in Pakistan became very much involved in the issue. This this involvement on the part of both the government and the Pakistan community expressed in unrestrained, virulent, abusive language by the press and the radio, posed a danger, and though the danger appeared to be more grave sometimes and on other occasions became less assertive, Pakistan always continued to distrust India and consistently fed the fire affected against her. It appears that on the evening of August 4, 1965, a young Gujar, Muhammad Din, was grazing his cattle in a meadow in Darakshi, above Bilbar, east of the Uri punch. He was then met by two raiders dressed in green salwar kameez uniforms and carrying arms. They took him into their camp in a nearby wood, where their leader solicited his assistance as a guide and informant. He was offered 400 rupees and asked to report back as soon as he had obtained the desired information about the location of grain stores and transport depots and had procured certain supplies and transport. It is remarkable that Din reacted sharply against this overture. He guarded the intruders as outsiders, and immediately proceeded to a police station in Tangmar and reported the incident to the police authorities. A similar incident took place about 50 miles further south in the forest near Gulati. At this place, another villager was similarly accosted by some of the intruders, and this reaction was the same. That illustrates how the infiltration came to the notice of unsuspecting Muslim citizens of Kashmir, and the same was reported to the police authorities, and that led to the preventive action on the part of Kashmir. Lal Bahadur Shastri gave expression to the national sentiments of India, when he observed that the conflict which began with the discovery of the infiltration on the 4th of August was not of the seeking of India. It was started, he said, by Pakistan when thousands of armed infiltrators invaded our state of Jammu and Kashmir commencing on the 5th of August '65, with the object of destroying or capturing vital positions such as airports, police stations and bridges and ultimately seizing power forcibly from the state government. On this occasion, India retaliated with strength and when he discovered that the defense of Kashmir would not be effective and the second front was opened, India did not hesitate to move her armies into the western Punjab. This step naturally turned Pakistan aggression on Kashmir into an undeclared war between India and Pakistan. Ultimately, this war came to an end on the 10th of January, 66, when the Tuscan agreement was signed by President Ayub Khan and Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri. Before the Tuscan agreement was signed, the Security Council, which had taken notice of the mounting threat to peace in this part of the world, had passed two resolutions on September 4 and 6 of 65, calling upon both the parties to cease hostilities. These resolutions, however, were rejected by both the countries, and peace between the two countries appeared then to be distant, and the danger of the conflict widening loomed large on the horizon. The Security Council naturally became very apprehensive, and on the 20th of September 65, it passed a third resolution. This resolution specifically fixed the deadline for the ceasefire at 12.30 hours, Wednesday, 22nd of September 65, and called upon both the governments to withdraw their military forces to the positions which they held before the current outbreak of fighting which started in August 5. This peremptory resolution was accepted by India and Pakistan. Both the governments ordered a ceasefire on September 22. The ceasefire came into force on September 23. In accepting this resolution, India made it clear that the other matters mentioned in the Security Council resolution required consideration subsequently. It was at that stage that the Soviet Union offered to mediate between India and Pakistan and the Soviet mediation succeeded, and that led to the Tashkent Agreement of the 10th of January 66. That is how the second act of aggression committed by Pakistan came to an end. Indeed, Tashkent Agreement breathed the new spirit of cooperation between the two nations, and the Prime Minister of India and the President of Pakistan declared by the said agreement their firm resolve to restore normal and peaceful relations between their countries and to promote understanding and friendly relations between their peoples. They consider the attainment of these objectives of vital importance for the welfare of the 600 million people of India and Pakistan. Before I part from the topic of the second aggression by Pakistan, I would like to mention very briefly the impact of this aggression on the minds of the peoples of India, both India and Pakistan. As I have just indicated, the Pakistan government seemed fondly to have believed that its aggression would receive spontaneous response from the Muslim population of Kashmir, and the people of Pakistan were fed on the belief that the aggression would succeed in a short time and Kashmir would virtually be annexed to Pakistan. This idea, in the mind of Pakistan, was presumably the result of events that marked the Chinese aggression in the Himalayas in 1962. It must be regretfully conceded that the Indian army made a poor show on that occasion. And though it would be unreasonable and irrational to blame the Indian army for its inability to resist the Chinese aggression, because the blame really lay with the policymakers who had not prepared the army in due time to meet such an onslaught, the military authorities in Pakistan began to feel that the Indian army was demoralized and would be unable to resist their onslaught in Kashmir. It was this kind of wishful thinking which pervaded official and unofficial quarters in Pakistan that was responsible for inspiring the aggression, and the same was completely shattered as a result of the incidents that followed. On the other hand, as soon as Pakistan's aggression in Kashmir was known to India, it had an electrifying effect on the minds of the people at large. All difference of opinion were forgotten. All disputes pending between different political parties were hushed and the country rose like one man to resist the aggression. Differences of religion, differences of caste, community and language were completely obliterated and the whole of India presented the unique sight of a nation determined to defend Kashmir, which was a part of India. The hour of India's trial, in effect, proved to be the hour of its glory.